Well, if you'll take a copy of God's Word and turn to Exodus chapter 21. If you're using the Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 78. We'll be beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 32. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, you shall serve, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he should go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears his sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore through his ear with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male servants do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign nation, to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing, without payment of money." Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors of the staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes a slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he will not be avenged, for the slave is his money." When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall be surely fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to the master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that in this time that you would help us by your spirit, that we would understand and that you would change us, give anointing to the hearer and preacher alike. It's in the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. Did your eyes glaze over as we read that? Let's be honest, we've reached a part of Exodus in our series that will often cause folks who are trying to read straight through the Bible to say, forget this. I'll try again next year. What are we to make of such a passage? Why in the world will we spend time on it? Well, if it's in God's Word, it's important. And if we're going through the book of Exodus, we shouldn't skip it just because it's hard. In fact, we have a lot to learn from this passage once we dig in a bit. Perhaps a broader question would be, I thought the Bible wasn't for slavery. And half of what we just read is talking about regulating the institution of slavery. So what in the world do we do with that? A lot of good questions come out of this section. This section from 21 to the end of 23 is called the Book of the Covenant. And it served as law for God's people to use as precedent. Not everything is dealt with in these few chapters of all the things that the judges would have to deal with as they're adjudicating cases for Israel. They would use these things as precedents and guidelines to help them to figure out what to do in each and every situation. You can learn a lot from a society, from its laws. You can learn about what a society values, what it thinks is important. And here in this chapter, in various laws here, we see that God values life. All of these laws deal in some way with the importance and the sanctity of human life and regulating and making sure that people are protected, no matter what situation they find themselves in. God values life, and so should we. That's what we want to work through this morning. Verses 1 through 11, we find that we should value the lives of those for whom we are responsible. Whether it's at home, at work, at school, or at church, many or most of us have some sort of leadership over a group of people, even if it's a group of friends. Big picture-wise, God calls us to value the lives and livelihoods of those under our care and responsibility, no matter their circumstance in life. The context here is Hebrew slavery. In verses 1 through 6, God gives Moses rules regarding the treatment of male Hebrew slaves. And in 7 through 11, we have rules regarding the treatment of female slaves. What do we do with this question? about that we're reading in Scripture laws about slavery. A lot of times we might be tempted to get a little embarrassed when we read things that don't really jive with what we think it ought to be there. Let me tell you something. We don't have to ever be embarrassed about anything in God's Word. God's Word is truth. And and I have been... When I open up my Bible Monday morning to look exactly at what I'll be preaching on, I can't say I was really excited about preaching this passage. In fact, the thought was, oh no. But I've loved reading commentaries and studying deeply this week because I'm reminded of God's truth that it is good. 
So what's going on here? What's the answer? Does the Bible really support slavery? To answer, that, this, answer this question, we have to back up for a second and think about our cultural lenses and ask the question, does this line up with what we think of slavery? The answer is no. As modern Americans, our context for slavery is a terrible, awful, sinful, evil institution that marked and plagued our nation up to the end of the Civil War and continues to reverberate in our society and cultures even now. It was based on violence, forced enslavement, the breakup of families, the impunity of masters to do whatever they wanted, terrible working conditions, no hope of freedom, the loss of personhood, and the whole institution was characterized by death rather than life. This passage speaks very clearly against such slavery, period. Period. But you know, it's not just a problem of our past. It is estimated that in the modern world, there are approximately 70 million people still enslaved. It looks different. But 10 million of those are children. Most of them are caught up in sex trafficking. So let's talk through the differences here. First, Hebrew slavery was voluntary. And by that definition alone, we have to think is this really slavery? It was voluntary, it was not involuntary. In fact, involuntary slavery is prohibited expressly in verse 16. You could not be involuntarily enslaved if you were a Hebrew. Now, if they went and conquered a people under, the, under those times, they could say, look, we'll either kill you or you can come back and work as forced labor. And that was mercy. So it's a little different in that situation. But if you were a Hebrew, you could not be enslaved against your will. Immediately, we see that this rules out the American expression of slavery, for kidnapping was the entire basis of the American and Caribbean forms of slavery. Not this one. For the removal of coercion and forced enslavement by modern standards means that we really ought to think of these folks not as slaves, but as servants. Indeed, the Hebrew word for slave is the same word that means servant or employee. Deuteronomy 15 says, You shall not even call them slaves. These are your people. What in the world would make someone want to sign up for this kind of situation? Well, the most common reason was debt. In the day before credit cards, one of the only ways you could pay off your debt was by committing yourself to work for someone for a season of time. Now, they would get a place to live, food, shelter, and live with even a family, And they could pay their debts, which meant what? They got paid. Well, that's not slavery, is it? At least from our understanding of it. Another really big difference was that unlike American slavery, Hebrew servitude, I think we should call it that instead, was not indefinite. It wasn't forever. Verse 2, when you go and buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out for free for nothing. You would sign up, so the person would sign up for six years of serving a family. And at the end of that six years, in the seventh year, they would be set free. 
They could re-up their contract if they wanted to. But the decision was theirs. In a lot of ways, it looks a lot more like modern military service than anything. That's, that's kind of how it works in the military. You sign up for a period of years, and then those years, you know, they, they, they come up, and they're real nice to you at the end, right? You know, hoping that, that you'll sign up for another four-year, six-year uh, commitment. But you can't leave in that time. You're committed to them. It's a lot of how this worked. Thirdly, they got paid. We, we know this. For, for Deuteronomy 15 puts it really clear. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock and out of your threshing floor and out of your wine press, as the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall give to him. So after the six years, he's been getting paid the whole time so he can pay off the debt. And when he leaves, he's not to go empty-handed. It's not just saying, okay, you're out of here now. You had to take him down to the stable and say, all right, here, here are a few sheep for you. You had to take him to your tack room. Here's some tackle. We're going to make sure you're set up. There was great cost here to the, to the person uh, in charge. Another really important difference is that families were left intact. One of the most terrible parts of American slavery was that it broke families up. You'd have a mother and a father and children all serving on three different places. Never to see each other again, that's not allowed under this system. Verses 3 to 4 describe the situation. If a man entered single, he left single. If he, married, if he entered and married, his wife was not part of the deal. That was, she was not automatically a slave. And then when he left, she went with him. Now he knew on the upfront that if he married another servant, slave, whatever we want to call this institution, that he'd have to wait till she had finished her commitment. He could either stick around and wait, he could re-up his commitment and stick around longer, or he could decide to stay. Verses 5 through 6 says that if he wanted to of his own free will, he could stay forever. What's going on there? Well, they'd both go to the tabernacle or later temple before God and the and both parties would have to swear before the judges, hey, we're, there's no coercion here. We love each other. And he's a great employee, and he's a, a great uh, boss, and this is working out really well, and I want to stick around. So then they'd take you to the door, and they'd use an awl or a nail, and they would pierce your ear. And it would be a symbol for everyone that you had bound yourself to this family. This is really more indentured servitude. There's really more a contract way of working. And one of the big things is it offered protections for men, women, and children. Men, women, and children. A lot of, all marriages in this time were, fit, were fixed, uh, arranged marriages. That's how they did it. Everyone's marriages were arranged. And if you were poor and had no money and on the threat of starvation, you could arrange a marriage with a rich man for your daughter. And he would be a servant in the household, or he would be the wife, or, or she would be the wife, or she would be the wife of uh, the master's son. And if, if they get married, she's a full wife, and he can't treat her any differently. And if she marries the son, then she's adopted. She has to be treated as a daughter Another big difference was there was, no, there was no violence allowed here. 
Now, uh, an owner, a master, a boss, whatever we want to call this person, could use corporal punishment to discipline a, a servant, um, which is historically was done in, in every area of life, even just regular employees. Um, but he could not permanently hurt somebody. Verse 20, when a man strikes a slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. What does that mean? He will be killed. Capital punishment, the same law dealt with the murder of anybody and one of these servants. If he knocked out a tooth, hurt an eye, they were free to go. There are great protections here. By the way, this is the same thing that Paul's going to echo in his letter to Philemon in that book in the New Testament, dealing with his Christian slave Onesimus. He's going to take away any ability for Philemon to hurt or bring retribution against Onesimus. Did you know that in the Roman culture, when we get to New Testament times, a quarter of the population were slaves? Full 25% of the Roman population was made up of slaves. That's a lot. It's not based on ethnicity, is is it? Ours certainly was, on on the color of skin and where they were from. God's people had just gone through this in Egypt. They had been enslaved because they were God's people, both ethnicity, eth- ethnically and spiritually. Why? Why would God make all these laws? And why would they be the first ones out of the chute after the Ten Commandments? Because God's people had just come out of slavery for 400 years... And he didn't want them treating each other like they had just been treated. Why? Because everyone is made in God's image. No matter your situation in life, no matter your circumstance, no matter what you do for a living, no matter the amount of money you got in the bank account, what kind of car you drive or don't drive, what kind of clothes you wear, it doesn't matter. God values life. The poor, the weak, the rich and the strong alike. Even those of different religions. Now they must call the name of Jesus if they are to be saved, but they still have value because they are made in God's image. All right, well, that's well and good. But what about us? What's the application? What's the takeaway from this? Does this just govern this situation and not have anything to do with us anymore because we no longer have slavery praise Jesus? The direct application here is that we are to take care of those over whom we have charge. Whether it is at work or you're a ringleader of a group of folks that exercises the why, if people look up to you, if you know folks in your neighborhood, we are to treat others well and care for them if we have responsibility over them. Employers not only have the duty not to mistreat their employees, but also they must seek their betterment and even their career advancement. If, if there was a servant who was helping in a, in a blacksmith shop, the, the owner had an obligation to provide him the things he would need to be in direct competition with him when he left. That's, that's tough, right? We can apply this to actual business owners, but you know I'm not an actual business owner, but do you hire a lawnman or a house cleaner? Or even this church, we hire folks who come in and and clean our church. Do we treat those who don't have the flashy jobs? Do we treat them well? 
perhaps you don't have a business or a house cleaner or a lawn man. You look at my Isaiah's and you can tell I don't have a lawn man. Um, you know the best time to cut those things? Right now. They won't grow back as well. Um, well, there's always a pecking order at work, right? Always a pecking order at work. You've experienced this. I imagine many of you have been at the, the wrong end of that stick. From the places I've worked, from the Special Collections Library at Sanford to the Skeet Shooting Range in Wetumpka to the, um, the, the coffee shop in Tuscaloosa, every one of those has had a pecking order. How do we treat those under us in the pecking order? God values life and so should we. Well, quickly, let's run through the rest of this passage. This other, these other ones talk about um, laws uh, respecting and protecting human life. Uh, we should value justice that protects human life. Capital punishment is here for those who commit murder, um, not those who are, uh, commit involuntary manslaughter or passion. You know, if you struck or cursed your parents, you could be um, executed. That seems a little harsh. Kids, have you ever mouthed off to your parents? Um, well, that's not what it's talking about. The, uh, the, the Hebrew here means to strike with the intent to kill uh, or to disown somebody. That's what it's talking about. Kidnapping, kidnapping, no good. Abortion, no good. Causing someone to miscarry, no good. Striking eye for an eye, paying life for life. We see this in verse 23. But if there is harm, if you were to harm a mother that she would miscarry or the child would be damaged, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. I think a direct application of this would be that abortionists deserve the death penalty. What are we supposed to do with this statement in 23 to 25 about an eye for an eye? Doesn't that sound a little extreme? Surely we don't do that anymore. Well, this actually was meant not to make punishment really bad. It was meant to make punishment equal to the crime that had been committed. Let me ask you something. If someone hurts your child, you want them to suffer a lot, don't you? When someone cuts you off in traffic... You want them to suffer, don't you? Generally speaking, when folks hurt us or our loved ones, we want them to suffer more than they made us suffer. And that's exactly what these laws were meant to prevent. It didn't literally mean that if someone gives you a bruise, you get to go bruise them. It meant that they had to pay a fine that was worth the pain that they brought upon you, except for life. That, that, that deserved life. We see laws here for violence against neighbors um, and criminal negligence. Mark is going to talk about negligence next week, so I'll leave that for him. But, but what's the application here? What about for us? What about us for normal 21st century folks? Well, we see that God values justice, especially in regards to protecting life, and so should we. Many of these laws seek to protect those who had little or no voice in society, like children and slaves and the unborn. The one application we have here is that there must be one law for everyone. One law for everyone. 
We don't seek to treat one group of people as more advantaged than the other. Leviticus 24, 22 says, You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 19, 15 says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Rich or poor, native or immigrant, we must treat all fairly under the law. We must value laws that protect the unborn. We must value laws that protect the old and infirm, guarding them from abuse and exploitation. We must seek to care for those in our society who need the basics and necessities of life as a church, as God's people. We must be careful not to dehumanize any group of people by treating them as if they were less than others. But be careful about how we speak of others. How does this point, my text, point us to Jesus? This is always a great question when we read a tough passage like this one. How in the world does this text point us to Jesus? We could go in a lot of different directions. This text points out our sin, that we don't always value life, and Christ died to pay for those sins on the cross. We could use the slavery in this text to remind us of how Christ has freed us from slavery to sin. He humbled himself even to the point of death. He was a servant. Death on the cross. We can even mention that the price paid for the slave in verse 32 is the same price that Judas got paid for handing over Jesus. Let's end with the laws regarding capital punishment. For it's here that we find the closest connection to the cross. What do we deserve for our sin? For certain sins, it might be literal capital punishment, but there is a spiritual capital punishment, which is eternal life in hell that each of us deserves. And Christ has taken upon Himself that capital punishment on the cross, the God-man Jesus, who would die in our place, that we would have life instead of death. God values life so much that He would crush His Son So that all who look upon Him in faith, all who ask God for for forgiveness and entrust their lives to Him and look to Him for salvation, that they may have eternal life now and always. Until then, we, until Christ comes again, we will struggle with valuing life like God desires us to. But one day, Christ will come back. One day, Christ will come back and get rid of all the injustice in this world that in my heart and in society. Until then, we say, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for setting us free from slavery to sin. We thank you, O Father, for sending your Son to take the, the spiritual capital punishment that we deserve, that we might live and have eternal life. Help us then, Lord, in response to these things to value the lives of others and their livelihood as you have called us to. To seek for the good of those who are disenfranchised, for those who are oppressed, for those who are marginalized in our society. We thank you and ask that you would help us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.